Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. The fact that so many young people who are probably at, at low risk of having a personal catastrophic health outcome from COVID-19, the fact that we're asking so much of, of them in this moment, I think can't help but shape our political debates in the years to come. Hello and welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. You have heard now for weeks the refrain, social distancing, get away from people. We've covered on the show the trade-off it may or may not have with the economy, right? Social distancing is economic distancing. But what about just what it is itself? Forget for a moment the economic recession. What about the social recession, the way in which the people in our society, particularly the elderly and the disabled, but not only them, the people most vulnerable already to isolation, to loneliness, and all the mental and very importantly, physical health costs of those two things. What about them? What happens to you if you're being told that for maybe the rest of the year, who knows how long, you who already didn't have nearly enough social contact in your life are going to have almost none? What about the people who don't have family members who will set them up on Zoom, who will reach out to them? What do we do for them? How do we help them? How do we take the social recession as seriously as the economic recession? Because make no mistake, when you take a, a the human animal and take them out of community, rip them out of community, tell them to be afraid of other people, it's going to hurt, right? You, we are forcing people to live for their own safety in a way that is incredibly agonizingly abnormal. I've been reporting on this, and, and I, I reported with a woman named Deborah. She's the caretaker for her sister, older sister, who has Lou Gehrig's disease, which is, if you don't know about it, a, a horrible, horrible, fatal disease where your body begins to lock up and you can't really speak and, and, and you can't really move, but you're there. You're, you, you're, you're there. And she was telling me that she's a retired nurse and every other day she would go to her sister and she would take her out. They would go to a movie. They would go out to dinner or to lunch. They would go to her crocheting class. And that was her sister's connection to the world. And now, because of coronavirus, she can't go see her sister or couldn't for a while because she was in quarantine. And she can't take her sister out to those public places in the same way. So now her sister was already had so little ability to be out in the world. Now she has so much less. And it's one of the most single most heartbreaking bits of reporting I've had to do on this. My guest today is the right person to talk about this with. Eric Kleinenberg is a Helen Gold Shepherd professor of social science, and he's a director of the Institute for Public Knowledge at New York University. And he's written a bunch of books that are very relevant to the question of what happens to the most socially vulnerable amidst disaster, recession, and just trauma. Um, he's the author of, among other things, Heatwave, A Social Autopsy of Disaster in Chicago, Going Solo, The Extraordinary Rise and Surprising Appeal of Living Alone, and Palaces for the People, How Social Infrastructure Can Fight Inequality, Polarization, and the Decline of Civic 
life. I'm not going to spend too much time introducing this, but I will. I do want you to keep one thing in mind as you hear it. We don't just need social distancing. In some ways, I wish that we had not come up with that term at all. What we need is physical distancing and social solidarity. And that's harder because it requires us to pull ourselves in two directions at once, but it is unbelievably important. And it is something that all of us right now can do. My email is always EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Here is Eric Kleinenberg. Eric Kleinenberg, welcome to the podcast. Hey, it's good to be here, Ezra. Thanks. Let me start by asking about the heat wave that you've done work on. Talk to me a bit about how social isolation works within natural disasters in general. Well, disasters are you know, hardly natural. They tend to target specific people and specific places. And one thing that uh, I've observed in, in crisis after crisis is that the people most at risk are, are, are not just you know, older or poor or frail, uh, they're oftentimes people who are, are quite isolated, uh, socially isolated. They, they lack strong ties to friends or to family or to neighbors and just don't have that social contact that can make the difference between life and death, you know, especially during a dire moment. Tell me a bit about the heat wave and, and, and how that played on social isolation among the elderly in Chicago. Yes, it was the first big project I did uh, as a social scientist. Um, I grew up in Chicago, and uh, in the summer of 1995, I was just about to start graduate school in Berkeley, actually. I was leaving my hometown. But before uh, I started, there was this incredible heat wave that, that, that hit Chicago. It, it, the temperature got to be about, about 106 degrees, and it felt like 126. It didn't last that long, just a couple of days. But the human toll was extraordinary. There were more than 700 excess deaths uh, during the, the week that the heat wave hit. And that was far higher than the climate and health models that scientists were using at the time predicted. And so I started this project that I, I came to call a, a social autopsy of the disaster. And, and I wound up going back to Chicago to, to trace who died and where they died and, and why they died. And one of the first things I discovered is that uh, hundreds of people in Chicago wound up dying alone during that crisis. And the reason that so many people died alone that week is really because so many people were living alone and aging alone uh, all the time. That's something I hadn't really understood before I did that project. And since then, it's completely changed the way I understand you know, who we are and how we settle today. Can you talk a bit about how that understanding has built? Because you've gone on to write books about being alone as a almost a social innovation we have made possible through technology and culture, but that can have both a, a real good side and a real dark side. Why don't you talk about the positive side of a society that can have lonesomeness uh, or aloneness and then the dark side of lonesomeness? I, I will. I mean, I guess the first thing to say is this is an area where there's just an incredible amount of conceptual confusion. And we, we do a bad time making sense of this because we're always mixing up uh, living alone and being alone and feeling lonely. So if, if we could just start there, I think that's important. The, the, the thing I, I, I kind of came to understand looking at Chicago is that there are enormous numbers of people who are living alone. They, they just are you know, living on their own in a one-person household and that is an extraordinary thing because literally in the entire 200,000 year history of our species, you cannot find a single society 
that sustain large numbers of people living alone for long periods of time, really until like the middle of the 20th century, at which point it becomes quite common throughout the developed world. So, so there's a lot of living alone. And then um, there, there's a, a big concentration of people who live alone who are older. So a lot of it is you know, older people who typically have outlived their spouse. In some cases, they got divorced earlier and never remarried. Um, and that, that's just something that we've never had before as a species. And, and that can lead to all kinds of issues. A subset of people who are, who are living alone are also socially isolated. They simply don't have a large number of contacts in their lives. And so they spend a good t- deal of their time you know, on their own. And uh, for some people, you know, being alone is a manageable problem or situation. They're introverts or they uh, go out and find the, the right level of connection and companionship in, you know, libraries or diners or parks and playgrounds. Uh, so, that, so they make those connections. But for another part of the population, uh, being isolated, being alone leads to loneliness. And that's, that's another distinct thing, but it's real. And there's a big debate about, you know, whether we're lonelier now than we've ever been, or we're more isolated than we've ever been. There's a lot of concern these days, especially with the rise of social media, that a lot of us are spending, you know, too much time on our own, too much time in our screens, not enough time together. Talk a little bit about the way in which you're a part of a tremendous social experiment, because it can be easy to skip over that line that this is not something that has happened before in human history. You've never had a society with large numbers of people living alone. What changed in the 20th century to make this possible? Yeah, it, I'm glad you you paused there for a second because it, it, it can go by pretty quickly. You know, p- part of the thing is that we're so used to uh, kind of focusing on, on problems uh, our framework for for talking about social issues is generally to talk about problems. And I think for a long time, commentators, you know, journalists and social scientists got caught up in this question about, you know, why so many people seem to be on their own or disconnected. And they hadn't really noticed this kind of bigger transformation, which which I wound up locking into for this book I wrote called Going Solo. And, and I should say that, you know, when, when I started writing this book, the, the tentative title for it was Alone in America. And the, and the idea was that I was going to kind of follow up to the lonely crowd and the fall of public man and the bowling alone books that had been so influential in the U.S. Uh, to, to write. A, I was originally planning to write a book about the problem of, of, of disconnection and isolation. But what I discovered you know, when I, was, when I was working on the book is that, in fact, there was a, a, this unprecedented change in the way that we were organizing ourselves and settling. And really, starting in, the, in, in about the 1950s, you see the, 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 the kind of market in the economy uh, taking off and, and generating enough affluence and the, the kind of welfare state developing enough that uh, older people uh, got a set of services and goods that they hadn't had before. Uh, and even younger people had access to uh, public services. Uh, and, and I guess as, as the decades go on, more crucially, uh, women gain access to the paid labor force and develop their own capacity to, to, uh, to make it on their own. And this incredible revolution happens where people start to settle on their own. And it's an amazing transformation where really you have just a, a, a small percentage of Americans who are living on their own 
in the in the early parts of the 1900s. And today, it, you know, nearly 30% of all households in the U.S. are one-person households. It's just a it's it's a massive transformation that I think we we still haven't reckoned with. It always seems to me that. For people, the good of a person is almost always the bad of the person, too, that what makes somebody great is what is going to ultimately irk you about them or, or lead to problems. And that's true in societies, too. I think that in America, we value individualism, the pursuit of not just personal liberty, but personal flourishing. I think that a lot of us are happy that we were able to move away from home at some point and pursue our passions in a whole other place. But then the flip of that is there are people who wanted or needed more of that structure and they get very left behind. And it seems to me to be particularly a problem on this because the society is so full of the narratives of the people who go out and make it and such that being alone and being hurt by being alone or being elderly and being alone, it ends up feeling like a little bit like your fault or justified or, well, you know, you had your chance and now, you know, you're you're, you're older and on the ice flow that there's a pitilessness to the way we treat the downsides of individuality here because we need that moralism around individuality to keep our stories seeming healthy and keep them uh, holding their power. I, I think that's right. I think uh, we can be ruthless in that way. And the part of the, kind of a, America's reigning uh, cultural narrative is that you know if you are capable, uh, if you work hard, uh, you will achieve success, not just in your professional life, but in your social life as well. And so we therefore blame the victim uh, in all kinds of domains, including uh, you know, whether or not someone feels lonely or connected. And it's interesting because you know the, the United States is by no means the leader when it comes to living alone. I was really surprised to learn that. We are, we're actually laggards. Uh, living alone is far more common in most European uh, affluent nations than it is in the U.S. It's it's by far the most common in Scandinavian countries, uh, but it's significantly higher in France and Germany uh, as well. But what's different in the United States is uh, we have a tendency to move quite far from the place where we grew up, and so people in the United States are are not only living alone at fairly high rates, uh, but they also uh, tend to have traveled uh, some distance from. You know the, the the social network that they grew up with, and I think that puts real stress on each of us as individuals. There's there's just a tremendous pressure that you face if you wake up in the morning, and and your job is to create a social support system for yourself from scratch. There are different levels to a social question like this, but we've talked a bit about the individual level. People make choices. They sometimes those choices are not even made freely, right? They need to go somewhere for a job or to get an education that they can't get somewhere else. And then there's the the mythic level, right? America has a very deep culture of individualism. But what about the public policy level? You've talked about social infrastructure, which I'd like you to define here. But how much have we set America up in our policy decisions to be a place that is more atomized versus how much are these choices people are making that are irrelevant or even against the policies we have in place? Oh, I, I think we've made a lot of, of policy choices that put pressure on individuals to take care of themselves uh, and encourage them to pursue, you know, market opportunities, you know, where, wherever they exist. And in fact, when, when you live in a society that sustains a, a really generous welfare state, one that has universal programs to provide, you know, health or housing, reliable income, things like that. You know, you give people an assurance that 
they can stay, you know, where they are and and be okay. But if you live in a society like the U.S., where it's it's kind of all on you to make it or not, and programs and benefits that come from uh, the state are seen as stigmatized uh, because they're really for people who are failures. You put this burden on people to make it on their own, and I think all of us in the United States feel that kind of pressure. What you know, when I was doing the interviews for going solo with with younger people, uh, one of the stories I heard over and over is that young people were were not settling down. They were not uh, entering into. They're they're not investing in big relationships in the early parts of their careers. This is really true for professionals because they had the sense that. Uh, in their 20s and even into their 30s, their job was to you know, get an education and to build their professional networks and to to impress their bosses as much as possible so that they could make it professionally. And they knew that if they could do that, they could draw on those accomplishments for many years and kind of the personal, the social stuff would come later for them. And that, that's a, a, an issue that's a gendered experience, by the way, where I think women tend to experience that even more than than men do. And it makes for a level of, of stress and pressure here in the U.S. That, that we just don't have a language for. I think to, most of us just take for granted that that's how we live. But it, it turns out that's, by comparative standards, very unusual. I apologize to the authors of the study because I'm forgetting who wrote it. But I read a, a couple of years back a study about the rise of single-parent households and the decline of marriage. And one of the sociological arguments in the study was that marriage has moved from being a cornerstone to a capstone, that it's moved from being something that happens very early in your life and that you build your professional life, you build your social life, you build your geographic life, you build your family life on top of your marriage to being a capstone that you can invest in that kind of relationship when the other things are done, when your education is finished, when you're successful in your career, when you know where you want to live, that it's like once you have all those pieces in place, then you can think about settling down and locking into that kind of relationship, which again, works amazingly well for some people. I, I want to I hold this thought in this conversation. It works wonderfully for some people who wouldn't have had the opportunities they get in another context. But for a lot of people, it doesn't work that well. And they tend to get blamed for the ways in which it doesn't work for them. For, for sure. And not, not to mention the fact that there's their biological realities you know, right. for, for, for women as well as for men that make it very difficult. So the pressure uh, that you know professional women experience when they hit their 30s, mid 30s, late 30s, and are still, you know, trying to make it uh, in a professional world that expects them to be, you know, working all the time, uh, but recognize that, uh, you know, if they don't have children soon, if that's something they want, uh, that that could make it much more difficult for them. Uh, and and you know, we're learning more and more about how the biological clock for men affects, uh, you know, the health and development of of their children as well. And so there's a, a whole bunch of of costs for this transformation. But I think it's important for us to kind of step out of ourselves enough to see just how much this emphasis on success in the marketplace, this necessity uh, of, of making yourself as successful as possible so that you can work through that in your adult professional life, uh, you know, how much that shapes our lives. We, we think about that as being prior to a whole set of of social and personal goods. And that's very much reflective of, of who we are right now. We've been talking here a bit about how we build a society, which often means what the young do. But I, I want to talk here about 
what happens to older Americans in the society. And in a way that intersects with our conversation, David Brooks wrote a really fascinating piece in The Atlantic a couple months back in the before times uh, about the family in American life, and in particular how the nuclear family, which we think of as the modal family, is really was only dominant for a couple of decades at most. And the fall of these big extended networks has led in particular older Americans and 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 disabled Americans to be alone in a context where they wouldn't have been alone before, where you would have been living multi-generationally, where there would have been people to take care of you. Could you just talk a bit about the rise in isolation among the elderly and how that may differ from from our past or from other cultures? Yeah, well, I mean, really, until the kind of middle period of the 20th century, the norm for older people was that you know you would live with your spouse, and if your spouse died, uh, you would then move back in with your family. Uh, you know, living alone, even as an older person, was was relatively uncommon. And that's changed tremendously. And I, I think we should be really careful about the way that we frame this. You know, so when, when I wrote Going Solo, I wound up interviewing an enormous number of older people. You know, one might think that the story here is the story of you know, younger Americans who are so focused on their careers or themselves that you know, they're not interested in uh, you know, taking in older relatives or uh, providing care, you know, being close. And, and I, I, there is some of that for, for sure. But the thing about a cultural change like this is it, it, it's affected everyone, including older people as well. Uh, and so in the United States, if you talk to older people, as I did for this book, you, what I discovered is that, you know, for the most part, their sense of their own dignity and integrity uh, was wrapped up with their belief in, in their capacity uh, to take care of themselves. The, 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 in other words, they prized their independence uh, or their impression of their independence so much that for the most part, if you're older and living alone in the United States today, uh, what you dread is that someone will tell you that you, know, you need to move back in with your children uh, because you need help. And what you try to do as much as possible is show to yourself and to everyone else that you're fully capable uh, of being on your own. And so it's a cultural change that's, that's, that's penetrated into the, the depth of who we are. And I think really shaped our ideas about how to live. And now at, the, at a moment like this, we're starting to think more about, you know, just how vulnerable we are in a, in a system like that, you know, that, that, that's a, we've, we've created a, a set of kind of cultural and domestic arrangements, uh, that's creating a, a whole new kind of vulnerability. That brings us, I guess, to the situation we're in now. And I had mentioned earlier that I wanted to contrast it with the heat wave in Chicago that you mentioned. I think in a lot of disaster scenarios, isolation and the risks that are run by the isolated, they're a like a risk factor, like a bad thing, but not related to the to the disaster itself. And here, the primary advice we have all gotten is to distance from one another. And particularly for the elderly, for the for people who are sicker or frailer, it's even more intense, right? You have to quarantine yourself. You really have to be careful. You should only go to the grocery store at special hours wearing gloves. Um, I know older people go out. They, My mom jokes like she looks like she's going out for a moonwalk right now. And so how should we even think about a situation where the isolation isn't a 
problem we need to solve, at least not in its first dimension, but an actual recommendation we're being given. And the people who are most vulnerable to isolation already are the ones who are being told to follow it most stringently. Yeah, it's, it's very tricky, right? Because in the heat wave in Chicago, it was social isolation that made you most at risk of dying. And, and what was so painful about that event, um, and so many of you know, Katrina was like this as well, is that really all you needed to survive was some social contact, you know, someone who could come and see that you were in trouble, you know, in the heat wave, it was, could, could, could you just get someone in water? Could you get them in exposed to air conditioning? And literally that's all it took to save someone's life at the early stage. And so here we have the situation where, you know, we're, we're being told not to have the kind of social contact that, that, that was protective, uh, in, in other crises. And I, and I guess, um, I think, the, the difficult thing here is that the message of social distancing seems to be a little bit off to me. There's no question that the way we get through this collectively and even individually is to maintain physical distance. And so, yes, that means, you know, if you're older, if you have an underlying health condition, especially, you need to absolutely minimize your touch points, your exposure with other people. And, and all of us need to shelter in place uh, and stay at home as much as, as, as possible to get through this. But that's really, for me, about physical distancing more than it is about social distancing. And, 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 and I, I've been a little frustrated with this language of social distancing that's come up so often um, because it seems to me like the idea that we're going to get through this if we turn our backs on one another and especially turn our backs on the people who are most vulnerable to this really misguided. This is a moment where, you know, yes, we need to stay indoors, stay distant as much as possible. But the only way we're going to be able to take care of and protect the people who are truly in need is if we build or, or draw on whatever stock of social solidarity we still have. And, and, you know, that means there are some people who are going to be able to deliver food to people who need to be home and alone. We're all recognizing how much we depend on delivery people and the cashiers and grocery stores and the people who provide food in pantries. And, and clearly, you know, the, the, the medical staff that's doing this kind of extraordinary and, and heroic, courageous work at the moment. And so, so it, it seems to me like, um, yes, we're in a very different situation than we were in a heat wave, um, but we still need to be thinking about how we lend a helping hand. You just brought in a term that I think is important, which is social solidarity. And that, that might be a term people have heard thrown around, but can you define it? Yeah, well, solidarity is a, a word that sociologists have used for a long time because Emile Durkheim, one of the founding figures of sociology, uh, you know, wrote about how solidarity has really shaped modern life. He, he talked about kind of the contrast between a mechanical solidarity where, uh, you know, we, we were kind of given the idea that we have affinities for other people around us uh, based on, you know, kind of a simple, uh, you know, shared identity or shared attachment to a place. And, uh, what, you know, what he considered to be a more organic solidarity, which came from uh, a modern world where we had distinctive roles and we came to recognize the extent to which we are interdependent. And so, you know, for me, solidarity, and I think for, for the sociological tradition uh, that I uh, have been steeped in, solidarity is an idea about recognizing, honoring, 
and, and sustaining the bonds of interconnection, the ties of interdependence uh, that allow us to flourish. And so if we go back to the beginning of our conversation where we talked about this kind of a spirit of rugged individualism that's so central to the American self-identity, it really stands in stark contrast to this uh, other idea of, of solidarity. It's about being in it together. I think this gets into some tricky territory, but I'm going to try to navigate it anyway. Something that has struck me in this crisis is the very rapid demand for a high and and truly painful, a sacrificial level of social solidarity from people in, say, retail jobs, young people who are going to school, towards the rest of society in a society that has not extended very much solidarity often to them. So if you compare us to, say, a Scandinavian society or some of the Western European nations or even Japan, and you look at their social safety nets or thinking about it generationally, you look at what some of those countries are doing on climate change to try to prepare for the future versus what we are doing. And you see countries that have had more of an ethos of solidarity, more of an ethos before coronavirus hit, that if you are sick, if you need help, need time, if you don't have that much market power, we're going to stand with you and make sure you have health insurance, paid leave, make sure there's an environment and a climate here for you and you get older uh, that is have habitable. And here in America, we have not performed all that well on some of these measures. And then all of a sudden, we have to demand and are seeing a lot of insistence on very high levels of social solidarity and social sacrifice. And it has struck me that I think we're responding in a lot of ways pretty well, though not in every way and not at every level and certainly not at some of our highest political levels. But nevertheless, there is a tension there between the amount of solidarity we nurtured in the easier times and what we are demanding and three months from now will still need to be demanding in a harder time. Look, I, I think this is completely right and essential. And listen, the, the, the failure of the United States to respond to the coronavirus pandemic is overdetermined. Uh, it, it clearly, you know, is a story that begins with a you know total failure of leadership in the White House and the, the denial and the refusal uh, and the incompetence of our kind of large scale federal response. Um, but that also goes down to the, this kind of question of, of solidarity. Uh, and, you know, we are so accustomed to, you know, acting on our own to doing what we want, you know, when we want to do it. And, you know, we are so distrustful, I think, collectively uh, of the way that the state treats us because of what we've done politically over the last several decades, uh, that we don't have the resources of solidarity to draw on that we see in other places like Japan and South Korea and Germany uh, and Scandinavia. And so I think this is a, a, a major issue, right? Because it's social solidarity that you know, determines whether you send your children to school in the early days of a pandemic, you know, before they have closed down, you know, even if they're sick. And it's, you know, it's social solidarity that tells you not to, not to fight through your cold and go outside uh, you know, when there's not a ban uh, on, on outdoor activities. And, and frankly, if, you know, if you scale up, it's solidarity that determines whether you live in a state that provides things like uh, universal health care or 
paid sick leave or guaranteed sick leave for workers. And so, you know, when you don't provide those things all the time, and then you need people to be mindful of each other uh, and to make compromises and, and deep sacrifices uh, in their personal life for the good of of the the public, of, for the good of the of the of the collective, uh, you need some sense of a collective to draw on. And and you know, I, I, it's not like I think that this is impossible. Um, it's not like I think we 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 will definitely fail. Uh, we're, we're at a moment where you know, we're talking during a week where I think everything is at, at stake. I mean, this is one of the most consequential weeks, if not the most consequential week in modern American history, at least that I can think of, because we'll see how we deal with the uh, demands of the pandemic, both in terms of our social life and also in terms of our, our policy challenges. But th- this could be a switching point. We could muster the, the best of ourselves somehow, but it's going to be very difficult given the way we're operating now. One thing that is just incredibly striking to me about this moment and about this point is here we are in this country that does not have a great history of solidarity and that has a a, a deep and, and at times it can be a crude individualism laced through our national mythos. And the political leader we have in charge is, I, I want to say this in a way people who may not always agree with me can hear it, but is maybe the least versed in a rhetoric and an ethos of solidarity as can be imagined. I mean, is himself an icon of American individualism, wealth aggregation, right? Like, you know, you can make it and then you can cover everything you personally own in gold (laughs) and has in that position been having a lot of trouble mustering a language or, for that matter, an agenda of solidarity and sacrifice. I mean, you gave, I thought, a very useful definition of solidarity earlier, but I would almost put at least part of it differently, that what is notable to me about solidarity, and you see this in the union movement and you see it in public policy, is solidarity is often the view that we recognize that there are going to be differences between us, differences in who we are, how we look, or the decisions we made, or the things we believe, or the gods we worship, but that in fundamental ways, we are going to ignore those differences when it counts. We may not ignore them in an argument. We may not ignore them you know, when we go see sports on Sunday, but Whatever you did in your life, you know, if you live in, say, the UK, you still get health insurance. Like, we don't care, right? The fact that maybe you made some bad decisions and lost your job or the fact that you just were in the wrong place at the wrong time and lost your job, it doesn't matter. You still get health insurance. And there are a lot of things like that where even in up all the way into macro politics, you have to say, you know what, you're a Democrat and I'm a Republican, but right now we're both Americans. And you don't need to do that every day. Like disagreement is part of politics and it can be important. But then I see Donald Trump tweeting it, you know, uh, Gretchen Whitmire calling her half Whitmer. And we're, we're in this moment that requires a lot of bridging of genuine difference and disagreement because it is a, a, a moment in American politics with a lot of disagreement. And yet what we have is a president who knows very little but fracture. And when you talk about the consequence of all of this, it feels very consequential. Um, somebody who doesn't is not used to sacrificing is going to have a lot of trouble asking others to sacrifice. And somebody who's not used to overlooking difference in order to find commonality is going to have trouble doing it when the chips are down. I think this is a serious concern. Uh, 
we have a, a you know president who even refused to honor this uh, notion of a of a shared America, of a of a common project, uh, the, the the night of his election. I mean, from from the beginning, his impulse has been to uh, to mock and to taunt and to insult and demean the political opposition to an extent that we you know maybe haven't seen since the Civil War. We see it even during this uh, you know pandemic situation. You know the insults to governors of states that if they're from another party you see it's kind of beneath the the rhetoric about what california is doing or what new york is doing uh what michigan is doing and it's terrifying in a way because if there's ever been a moment where you know we needed to be unified a kind of unification that says you know i will i will stay at home because i'm concerned about you and i'm concerned about us a pandemic situation is that moment i mean it's it's a moment like this where we see the extent to which our fate is linked you know the extent to which my health and well-being hinges on yours and i think we're now at a moment where we have no choice but to try to do this despite you know against the policies that are coming from the White House, the rhetoric that's coming from the White House. But I think that's going to be a, a much harder job than it would be under really any other uh, president I can think of. We've been talking about social solidarity, but something that also seems important here is social trust. And I've been thinking a bit about how much we have moved instantly from what a lot of people were calling the populist moment to what now seems to me to be an anti-populist moment, which is to say that if you look at the governments that are understood to be the ones led by the populace, if you look at Boris Johnson in the UK, Bolsonaro in Brazil, um, and, and Donald Trump in America, who I think are have been – they're not the only populist-leading countries, but I think they're the three most prominent. This has been a disaster in different ways for each of them. Johnson had – a catastrophic early response that they've had to entirely walk back, and now he himself has coronavirus. Bolsonaro has been an unbelievable disaster in Brazil, uh, and I don't know where that is going to go. But as somebody who has a lot of family in Brazil, I'm terrified. He, you know, bunch of people in his government have gotten it. He's out there shaking. Like it's a very bad situation that is leading to huge protests and a lot of governmental instability as the governors in Brazil begin to simply ignore him. Brazil is a place with a history of political and constitutional crises. And I'm worried for where that goes. And then in America, I know that Donald Trump's poll numbers are doing okay right now, but we can check back on this in three months. This is not being handled well. And I think the fact that it's not being handled well is not just going to matter politically, but it's going to really, really hurt people. And so it, it seems to me that so much of populism is about mistrusting the experts. And here you're seeing this moment where you really need to put faith in what they are telling you, right? If they tell you that three weeks from now, if we don't do these things that seem completely impossible, we are going to be in a situation that is beyond horrific, but you can't feel it just yet. There are societies with a lot of trust that have been willing to say, okay, I believe you, we'll do it. And then societies that are led by populists who don't have that trust, and in fact, their political project is about undermining that trust in those institutions, and they've been much more loath to say, okay, we'll do it. And I think the bill on that is going to come due. Look, I, I think one of the things about events like this is that it's, it's, it's going to be hard to hide the bodies, and it'll be hard to mask the, the unemployment, the, the poverty, the decimation of you know, large chunks of our 
health system and economic system. I mean, you, you can see it uh, on the front lines in New York City this week, uh, where you know where the hospitals have just a few more days before they're out of supplies and are already uh, overwhelmed and, and and clearly lack uh, many of the basic things we need to keep people alive. It, Trump might be getting a, the kind of boost you get from being the leader in any kind of crisis when we want to have faith that the response is working. Uh, but I think already we can see that the uh, the, the trajectory of, of this pandemic situation in the United States is more dire than it is in just about any other place in the world. You know, because we uh, distrusted, or, or so many of us distrusted, public health experts, uh, the epidemiologists, the medical doctors, uh, the policymakers uh, who warned about what kind of disaster this could become. I mean, I think it was massively consequential that for uh, weeks and maybe even months after this COVID-19 emerged in China, we had a whole alternative media spectrum, which turns out to be the <laughs> most popular media part of the cable news system, you know, with Fox basically saying, you know, this is an exaggeration. This is a political ploy from liberals to try to bring down a president. In fact, you know, this is no worse than the flu. And, uh, you know, the, the, the staying power of that narrative was just extraordinary. I mean, I'm on listservs uh, that include some conservative academics as well as progressive ones. And really, uh, to this day, I am seeing uh, complaints that the American response is exaggerated and concerns that the solution will be worse uh, than the disease. Uh, clearly, at this point, that is a, a ludicrous uh, argument. And it was this kind of horrifying piece that I uh, an interview with uh, the law and economics professor Richard Epstein that came out uh, this, this week uh, in, in The New Yorker that just shows the kind of bankruptcy, the intellectual bankruptcy of this position. I, I, but still, we have legitimate intellectuals uh, with a legitimate standing in the world uh, and major news organizations promoting uh, this uh, quite destructive ideology and I think helping to whip up the kind of distrust um, that makes it so hard to respond collectively. And so that you know there remain parts of this country you know at the end of March, the beginning of April, where you know, a good number of people uh, think that this that we are being hysterical, uh, who are refusing to, Take the public health order seriously, and uh, you know I, th I think that's going to make our our response to the acute crisis difficult. And, th and then we have this whole next set of of, of uh, challenges we face, which is you know when we get to the other side of the pandemic um, and the health crisis uh, abates, how do we think about rebuilding and investing in each other? You know how do how do we come out of this? Um, in a way that's like the way we've come out of previous crises uh, and and not destroy any sense of a collective that we have or any sense of uh, kind of democratic culture that we're trying to preserve. I think that's very well put. I, I guess to move this into a more hopeful space, <laughs> let me let me let me tag on to what you said at the end there. We are in this crisis that demands at the very least physical distancing. And as you put it to me in another conversation, is revealing a lot, not just about who we are, but who we were, what kinds of fractures already existed in American life. Um, I was talking with physicians in 
the SF hospital system and they were telling me how many hospital beds are currently held by unsheltered people coming off the streets with possible COVID-19 symptoms and need to be quarantined in the hospital when the hospitals are already quite overwhelmed because we have nowhere to send them. They can't go to a shelter if they have coronavirus. They can't go back on the streets. So like our homelessness problem is dramatically worsening our coronavirus problem here in San Francisco. And what would it mean as somebody who studied the way past disasters have changed America for this crisis of that requires social distancing to leave also a legacy of social solidarity? Like what would have to happen from here? Well, it, it seems to me like first we're going to have to recognize just how much of the damage that we're experiencing here is due to our failure to invest in each other and to to invest in the kind of basic protections and benefits and public goods that people in societies like ours have enjoyed for many decades now. And, and I, you know, I, I think that we will have to have a real reckoning where we try to figure out why is it that the damage here is, is as, bad, as bad as it, as it is. And, and it, it does seem like we are going to have it worse than, than many other places. And, and it seems to me like if we can properly diagnose what's gone wrong, and if we have some political leadership that can name it and generate ideas about how we get through this, we have possibilities to turn this into a switching point for ourselves. I mean, it, it is often the case that a major disasters like this do put us on a different track. Uh, I think there's every reason to believe that we are about to have some kind of profound social change. I mean, first of all, we're going to have to find a way to bail out the economy. This is yet another moment where the illusion of the free market you know, is destroyed by the reality that it needs to be saved by government intervention. And then the question is, you know, how do we reinvest in what kinds of programs? And we'll have millions of Americans who will lose their jobs. It's th- you know, more than 3 million in the first week of this real crisis, and, and who knows how large it will get. So what kind of public program will we support to get Americans back to work? Could you imagine some kind of uh, works progress program like the one we had during the New Deal? Could, could, will we wind up rebuilding our infrastructure uh, with public resources as a way to you know, both get people back to work and also build some semblance of an infrastructure that will get us into the 21st century you know, where we need to be? Will we see sustained political pressure to take things like paid sick leave and guaranteed health care and, and make them permanent law? Uh, will, those be, will, will those become part of the fabric of a, of a new social contract that emerges out of this? And look, it's kind of an extraordinary thing that all of this happens during an election year where everything is, everything is at stake. I you know, so uh, worry about what will happen to the electoral process in the next several months. That's a, another conversation. But um, it, is an, it is an amazing thing that in the next several months, Americans will begin to focus on, you know, who we are as a country and what kind of world we want to rebuild in the wake of this. And, and so as down as I am about the state of solidarity at the moment and the leadership that we have during this crisis, and as fearful as I am about the real pain, I do believe that there's every reason to think that there is a path out of this that potentially gets us to a better place. Ooh, I hope that is right. One of the things that 
I have been tracking as a conversation has been the idea that it would be wrong somehow to use this crisis to advance a long-term theory of social change. And this has been present in the congressional debate as people have attacked some Democrats uh, for, you know, as they said, trying to like get the Green New Deal done through uh, a, a coronavirus package. And I get that in the immediate rescue moment, like in the immediate moment where you just have to get unemployment checks out the door and stimulus payments out the door, that maybe that's not the time. But something I think is going to be really important and is going to be really telling is in the next couple of months, is we have to build or rebuild pretty big parts of our economy, assuming we get the virus under control with reasonable alacrity, it seems to me you actually do want to have that conversation. And in particular, something that has been pinging for me quite a bit is this question of intergenerational solidarity. On the one hand, there is a lot of solidarity being required right now, correctly, morally correctly, from younger Americans to older Americans. It isn't that coronavirus bears no threat to the young, but it, it bears a very disproportionate threat to older people. And on the other hand, I don't think that the analogy to climate change here is totally wrong. I know some people reject it, but that is something where it is slow moving. It is coming in the future. We will wish we had prepared early, not late. Um, it's much cheaper if you do it earlier. Um, coronavirus hit much faster and more unexpectedly, but it has some of these same dynamics. And so it does seem to me that it isn't crazy for younger Americans to say, well, if we are going to have to go through all this and sacrifice this much, it seems reasonable that the solidarity needs to go in the other direction as well. And we need to begin preparing much more aggressively for what is looking to at least plausibly be the defining crisis of, of our generation. I'm curious how you think about that, that question of solidarity uh, going in a couple different directions here simultaneously, and what is asked by the people who are vulnerable in this crisis to the people who are sacrificing on their behalf. Look, I, I think that conversation is unavoidable. And I understand uh, why some people are concerned about uh, anyone trying to manipulate the real emergency that we're in at the moment to bring in some old political agenda that does not seem uh, immediately relevant to the question of you know how you get uh, checks uh, in the mailboxes of people who need to eat this week. But I don't think you can avoid the question about how we rebuild and, and who sacrifices and how we build solidarity across generations. We are fundamentally in this together, whether we recognize it or not. And we will have to make important political choices about where our collective resources and wealth go. Every time there's an emergency bill to try to revive the economy, we make important choices about social systems that will endure. And so I actually wrote an essay about the Green New Deal that will be out this week in um, the New York Review of Books, in which um, I, I, I link the debate to the debate around coronavirus in exactly the way that you say, that what we are seeing in coronavirus in a kind of very fast time frame is just how difficult and expensive in terms of money and in terms of human lives it is to wait and deny and deflect and spin until the thing is right here. And in that sense, I just don't see how we avoid a confrontation with the big looming threat that is there for all of us after the coronavirus situation abates. And, 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 and that's global warming. So I just, I don't see how it, 
uh, how it does not figure into the debate because, you know, fundamentally the question of a green new deal, you know, the question of a new deal, the question of how we take on this kind of massive uh, and daunting challenge, it, you know, it is the key problem of our time, but, but also, and especially for, for, for younger people. And the, the fact that so many young people who are probably at, at low risk of having a personal catastrophic health outcome from COVID-19, the fact that we're asking so much of, of them in this moment, I think can't help but shape our political debates in the years to come. And so I think, I think it is all coming. And, and, and uh, you know, I don't know what will happen because I can see it going in different directions. But the next months and years of American political life will be as explosive and consequential as, as anything we've lived through. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> you don't think so, Ezra? You don't? No, I think you're right. I just, I, one of, to just be pretty blunt about this, one of the things that has been very hard as somebody who has covered politics for, I don't know, 20 years now, is just watching this roll through and looking clearly at how little social capacity we seem to have for truly hard things. And it isn't that a lot isn't happening and a lot isn't being done. But when I hear, and I, I'm not saying I disagree, I actually agree that these coming couple of years will be the most consequential and potentially explosive. I hear that in both directions. Right. I mean, when something explodes, it can it can catch a lot of people in the blast radius. And I can't say that in either party, I feel that I'm seeing political leadership that seems up to the challenge we are about to face. So it isn't that I disagree with you. That laugh was not disbelieving it was rueful and it was tired. Um, it Well, because it seems like we've already been through it. I mean, if you think about the last couple of years, it's been draining. I mean, my, and, and, and my God, take the coronavirus pandemic out of 2020. And we already have a, an election and a fight in which everything is at stake. Yeah, I wasn't bored. <laughs> Before this started, I wasn't I wasn't sitting around without stories to write. No, but I mean, here, but but now, I mean, it's it's all the more significant. Um, because we, because we really do the face these, these fundamental questions. And, you know, it's, it's interesting. Uh, you know, where is Joe Biden during this moment? Um, you know, where is the leadership from Democrats in a moment where, you know, it seems like quite naturally, uh, uh Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren has a, a story to tell and a, and a plan for how you make the kind of investment, uh, in each other, in public goods, uh, in a Green New Deal, in social infrastructure. I mean, we, we could see, we could could have seen that that story, and then the and the country could have decided. But I think we still don't know uh, how Joe Biden will play this, and how the Democratic Party will play this. I mean, I think it's even harder than that in a way. We we know a lot about how Joe Biden will play this. He's been doing it's he's been doing a lot of TV, a lot of interviews. He's released very detailed plans. It's just that they're not that. He doesn't say anything that interesting, so it doesn't get covered that much. You, your point about um, a Sanders or a Warren is very well taken, but I think the one of the reasons this is such a difficult challenge of leadership is that a moment of this much threat creates a simultaneous need and desire among some for revolutionary or deeply reformist change, and then also a flight to emotional and psychological safety among others. And so you simultaneously need a politician who is unbelievably reassuring, who has this deep projection of co of competence and creates a lot of confidence, but is also 
intellectually and morally ambitious enough to be able to imagine not just how you manage a crisis, but what you can and even will need to build after it. And one thing I see watching Sanders and Biden, who at least at this moment are, are, are still at least technically in a race with each other, is Sanders often strikes me as having much more vision for what you might build in the aftermath, but does not, and I think understandably, inspire as much confidence as simply a manager of the government, right? How do you respond in the moment? And Biden, who I think, at least in their one-on-one debate, and you know, he's advised by people who really have done this kind of work before, like Ron Klain, inspires more direct confidence that a lot of people look at him um, and think, okay, well, he's been vice president. I'm sure he could handle it. But people aren't excited about his vision for what comes after. And he's not, I think, being able to use this moment to push any larger case. Now, maybe he will, or maybe they're lying in wait. But I don't know. I mean, that's why that's why I was saying earlier that I, it does not feel to me like the perfect leader is standing out there being heard at the moment. And we need we need something more than we're getting. I think that's right. And, and you know, look, I, I, I express some uncertainty about Biden because, you know, moments and situations can remake us. Um, and and, you know, he maybe he does have some opportunity to, uh, you know, fashion uh, a, a different message and a different set of ideas and policies. It would be surprising in some way if he did. Uh, but I'm really fearful that uh, the young people whose uh, energy and passion and moral conviction that, you know, we need to make sacrifices, you know, first for this pandemic, but then next for the, the larger set of problems relating to uh, inequality and ongoing, you know, racial inequality and, and, and global warming, that, that they will not be sufficiently inspired uh, in, in the fall of 2020 to come out and, and, and push for the kind of change that we'll only get, frankly, if they lead us. And I'll be watching very closely to see how they engage and where the leadership of what, what's clearly been uh, a kind of emerging political faction in the United States goes. And I think one of the surprises for me as an observer of the Democratic primaries is uh, I really did think that they would turn out in greater numbers. I really was surprised that the, they turned out about, about as much as they, they, they usually do. And I guess now there's this question of, you know, whether the, the, the changes that we're going through together and the fact that the stakes of our decision are so high, so apparently high, uh, you know, whether that will change things too. Well, I will say I have, uh, asked or requested or made the, the, the pitch to the Biden campaign to have, the vice president come on the show and and explain that vision and and convince people that that he's got that he's got the theory for what comes after. So maybe they'll take me up on it. Oh, and, I hope he does. And we'll all know more. Um, I, will, I will listen to that for sure. Well, see, we've got at least one. That's a you know we got got to you do this voter them, by yeah. voter. Um, we got a sociologist in New York waiting to hear what they have to say. <laughs> they 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 have been struggling among that sociologist in New York key demographic. demographic yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, as we bring this to a close, let me ask the question I'll you to end the podcast, which is what are three books uh, you've read that have influenced how you think about these issues or just how you think that you'd recommend to the audience right now? I, I was deeply influenced by the work of Paul Farmer, Infections and Inequalities, and the ways in which kind of the everyday fault lines that uh, structure our, our social lives affect our capacity to uh, endure crises like this one. 
and uh, you know, I really recommend his his work. He, you know, he's um, gone on to uh, you know be a quite prominent public health practitioner as well as a scholar. And his organization, Partners in Health, has uh, done extraordinary work in pandemic situations uh, and epidemic situations uh, around the world. And so, I really recommend uh, looking at his work. I guess I want to recommend uh, Arlie Hochschild's book, Strangers in Their Own Land, because it gives us some tools for thinking about this um, gulf in understanding and, uh, and empathy uh, that, that you know, makes it so difficult for us to uh, you know, feel some sense of, of solidarity at a moment when we, when we really need to, to muster it. And then I guess the person who's been the go-to author for me these last several weeks um, who I just took for granted is Rebecca Solnit, um, whose you know whose book of Paradise Built in Hell I reviewed years ago, um, and seems to be kind of exactly the kind of utopian thinking we need to find our better self. Because it turns out that uh, great things have come in the aftermath of our of our worst moments, and the challenge for us now is to. Uh, maintain our physical distance and to stay sane when we're locked up at home. But the next challenge is going to be to figure out how to build something better together. And I don't think there's anyone who's written about how to do that better than Rebecca Solnit. And I should say, Rebecca Solnit was on the podcast about a month ago, if people want to, to go back in the archives and hear that. Um, but Eric, this is wonderful. I really appreciate you being here. Uh, Eric Kleinenberg, thank you very much. Uh, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you to Eric Kleinenberg for being here. Thank you to all of you for being here. That conversation obviously went both macro and micro. Uh, we ended talking on the very big things, but I do want to take a moment here at the end and just bring it back to, to the individual. This can actually be a hard time to reach out. If you remember some of the past episodes I've done here with Vivek Murthy and Johan Hari, you remember that it's also sometimes difficult to reach out to people who are lonely. Uh, and probably many of us have been seeing this in our lives right now. You call somebody and you feel like you're doing a good deed by calling them, but they've been inside, haven't seen a person in 72 hours. They're anxious or scared. They lash out. They say things that scare us. And all of a sudden, this good deed that you felt so right about has become hard and maybe you pull back and don't do it again. Reaching out right now, it can sound simple, but it often isn't. It's particularly not simple if you're in a house and you've got kids screaming and you're overworked and trying to work amidst a crisis and you're not getting enough sleep and you're anxious. And But think, think right now if you can, if this episode can do one thing about just one person you can reach out to in the next day, just one. Um, and just in a small way, you can write them a letter uh, or an email, maybe is the safer way to do it. Give them a call. But what can you do to be showing social solidarity, not just at the big public level, not just writing to your congressman, but also just to, to reach out to somebody maybe you haven't reached out to and to reach out to somebody if you can, who maybe is difficult to reach out to because they're probably the person who needs it most. I would recommend if you want to hear more about the health effects of loneliness and how it changes us physically and also socially, the Vivek Murthy episode from a couple of months back um, and in different ways, but also important ways, Johan Hari's episode from a couple of years back. But I think those will give you a, a good grounding that is very related to this. Um, thank you, as always, to Roger Karma for researching, to Jeffrey Geld for producing. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production. 